What is good, everybody? My name is Tim, and this is the Performance Health Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about structural balance. We're going to open up with Corey Hobbs and myself talking about what do we know. We pulled a couple of research articles, one looking at quad hamstring ratio, the other one looking at shoulder function, and then leveraging my practical experience. We wanted to dive into something that's going to give us some sort of context is what the relationship between pushing and pulling, agonist and antagonist movements, and what that impact has on compensation, mechanics, overall performance, resiliency. Then we talked with Robert Jacobs about what we can do. And Rob talked about his assessment protocol, how he uses that to make an influence on his programming decisions, what he's learned over the past decade plus, as well as how he uses that as a way to sell his program. So a lot of great gems from Robert on that. If you love this podcast, you should become a member of our PH curriculum. Head over to phpodcast.com. You can not only see 50 modules, you can get access to this web show, which is going to be featured in video format. We skip all the ads, so all this fluff that I'm putting in right now, as well as you can see all the resources, all the transcripts, and all the notes. Rob sent a bunch of stuff over, so a lot of stuff to see on the actual module. There's going to be a ton to take home from this. So if you really like this podcast and you want to get the most from it, Get over to phpodcast.com, become a member of our curriculum, and see everything we got to offer. All right, let's talk about structural balance. If you're listening to this podcast, that probably means you were a strength coach or want to be a strength coach. And man, do I have the resource for you. It's called How to Become a Strength Coach, Periodizing Your Career in Strength Conditioning. This is your start to finish seminal resource to get you to becoming the best possible strength coach you can ever be. You can get your copy along with access to our course at phpodcast.com. This is a must-have for any strength conditioning coach or any aspiring strength conditioning coach out there. It will not only give you a step-by-step tutorial on how to become a strength coach, it will help you optimize your career every step of the way. Absolute must-have. If you like this podcast, get the book. Hey, Tim, we got structural balance on the agenda today. And I think most coaches would agree that we need to have a push for a pull. But I think the structural balance assessment is a little bit deeper than that. So can you give us the, the big overview of structural balance and why it's important? Let's go back to the start of all this. And actually, one of our co-hosts that we have on the show, Will Greenberg, and I did Poliquin Level 1 certification in 2010. And that was like my first exposure to like a true strength structural balance type assessment. My familiarity with assessments like movement screens, even force plates, a lot of exposure to stuff like that. Table tests, which we're going to talk about all these things here in the next coming months. But this is my really first exposure to looking at a assessment, looking at the balancing of antagonist movements that hopefully give you some sort of vector and control on your training. So the assessment we did was a traditional biochromial bench paired up with what they call Scott curl, or sometimes referred to as preacher curl. And we're going to talk a lot about this with Rob. And what that kind of gives you is some sort of context of where your anterior versus your posterior or your pushing or pulling or agonist antagonist muscle groups are in relation to each other. And there should be some sort of correspondence with one strength level versus the other. 
And where you can go from that is looking at what they call the remedial exercises, external rotation, a trap three, a power raise, and you can kind of get a range of what is their scapular stability, what is their function of their shoulder, what is the strength from these like pushing and pulling antagonist and agonist muscle groups. And you can do the same thing on lower body. The lower body is a little different, which, you know, I, I took some exceptions to. I felt like it really myopically focused on VMO and looking at clat tests, a split squat test, a wobble board test, uh, a overhead squat. And I just felt like it was very limited in regards to that knee in isolation from, okay, if we just strengthen this. And it kind of gets in this chicken or egg conversation of, is the VMO not really functioning the way it wants? We're going to talk a little bit more about this when we dive into research. But that premise of, okay, well, now we have a foundation of, if I push this much weight, what are the ratios that work off of that? So for me, it evolved into, well, what is their horizontal pressing, comparatively speaking, to their vertical pulling? And I can start to look at this foundation of, well, one of the more important things I work with with any client or any athlete is can they get strong, relatively speaking, to their body weight, right? For my gen pop, we talked about this last week on performance testing. It goes into they just want to look better, right? And if they have more relative strength, that's either a product of they gotten stronger, which is coming from predominantly increasing cross-sectional muscle area and, and increasing force output through having more contractile tissue, or they increase their body comp. And if they can do a pull-up, relatively speaking to them not being able to do a pull-up before, it either means they lost weight, improved their body comp, or they just simply got stronger, which are all net positive things for me and helping someone's aesthetics. The other element though is a lot of times we only really can focus on what we can see, right? And this is the gym lore thing of when we start to train and we start to get exposed to the weight room, typically we're more comfortable with whatever's in front of me, right? So if I can see myself in a mirror, there's a higher probability I think I can control that movement and I can navigate how to do that, right? I don't need instruction, that weird, awkward feeling when we're in that box gym and we put a bar on our back and we start to figure out a squat or we put a bar in our hands, we start to figure out how to, how to bench, that, that sits with you. And as we start to traverse and navigate, we start to use those as benchmarks, right? And why a bench or a squat has a really high probability of someone being focused on that comparatively speaking to what their pull-up is or their RDL or deadlift, it, it's just natural. There's this progression as we make, and that sits with us as we make our way through our training. But the reality is that starts to create some sort of compensation and balance, some sort of, I guess, unequal distribution of what we really need to be focusing on for not only performance, but longevity and health. And then two of like, what is that doing for overall ceiling, right? And we could talk about that as we talk about these ratios. But the real premise is, as we look through these like strength ratios, and what we did at Poliquin was a, a biochromial bench and lining up your, your index on or your middle finger on your the, the knurling of the bar. So we're just lined up directly over the shoulder, kind of give some sort of benchmark, pairing that up with a Scott curl, and we could see what the ratio was. And if I have a really poor Scott curl, the flexors of, flexors of my arm are really poor in relation to that. I need to work on more flexion in my arm, maybe some more upper back strength. If my remedials are really poor, okay, well, then I need to work on shoulder stability. And the same thing for the lower body. But as we start to progress too, it should really hold you accountable. And this is the thing I really want to get across in this what do we know segment. It's, 
it's essentially giving yourself some sort of diagnostic of your programming. And if you have these massive imbalances, you're just perpetuating a cycle of pain and dysfunction and lowering the potential for performance. And this is the responsibility of professional. When someone gives us the privilege of working with them and giving, that, giving us the opportunity to develop them in ways that they can't do themselves, i.e. they pay us for training them or we're working with a team, we have to be the voice of reason to go, okay, well, there's a limiting factor from just only focusing on a couple muscle groups or a couple core patterns. And we start to become structurally imbalanced. And then we get in this whole idea of reciprocal inhibition. We can go on this whole idea of length tension relationships, force velocity curves, all these things become compromised as we start to go through these structural imbalances. And as we look through our job, it's to demonstrate there is a balance here from this first test of, hey, I looked at your pushing and pulling muscle groups and one is predominantly stronger or noticeably stronger than the other. And that is my opportunity to really bring value to you. But the other end, it's I'm looking down the road of, hey, I want to really develop this person into a robust, really capable athlete. That will be a roadblock that we're going to hit some sort of stop point trying to get ultimately where we want to be to run faster, jump higher, or throw something further. And as we look through our real role, it's to having the back of your mind of, okay, I need to assess this to see where we're at. But also, too, is that how is that going to influence my program? And we talked about that last week, performance testing. If you're testing and it has no influence on your program, what's the point of testing? That's your job. It should have a really big impact on what you're doing. So to answer your question very directly, it's structural balance is the most important thing to figure out in regards to how we're going to traverse and navigate exercise selection in the future. Right. That makes perfect sense. One really good criticism I thought you had was like that myopic fo focus on the VML or like, like to me, it kind of seems like some of the exercises are kind of just, it looks random almost. Um, so is there any like good research that might support this a little bit? What, what's your take on that? So we looked at this research article looking at quad hamstring ratio before this, and this is a pretty common thread in ACL prevention, specifically with female athletes. But it's a good start point to kind of go through why structural imbalances is really, really critical to understand. And one of the things that they found from the research, and this is something significant, was this idea that it's not necessarily that the quad was overly strong, it was the hamstring was overly weak. And that perspective and frame of mind reference is important because what that signifies is a detrained area that this... It could be, and those are, these were soccer players, so they're looking at the potential for injury off of that, and their exposure to the weight room could be limited, and a lot of the things they're doing in an athletic position, jumping, cutting, jogging, are going to be a lot of anterior chain quad dominant exercises. So they're going to get some sort of stimulus or training effect, not the same as we were doing like a split squat or front squat, but they're going to get some sort of adaptation happening over time, but on the other end, if we look at it from the hamstring perspective, unless you're deliberately going to the weight room and really committing to developing that muscle group, you're not going to get the development. And what really came out from it and why the risk would go up, so it's not necessarily the quad being overly strong, it's the hamstring being overly weak, increased risk. What they'd established was this is probably going to lead to some sort of compensatory action. And it goes into this other element. It's all about frame of reference, right? The hamstring is a muscle group and we 
we'll talk down the road about movements, not muscles, but muscles are the things that are making movements happen. And developing these muscles, so to speak, is a really important thing to consider when we're looking at exercise selection, exercise order, density with certain things, total volume of certain exercises. But the reality is their real function is deceleration of knee flexion. And if I look at that mechanic parlaying into jumping, cutting, if that athlete doesn't have appropriate decelerative mechanics, meaning that when they're trying to land in a jump or sit into a cut, they're going to find some sort of compensation and usually come from using a predominant muscle like in your quad and knee extension to decelerate, which is going to lead to some sort of upstream compensation. They'll probably bend over at the waist. And what they were establishing was when that leg straight is from that absorption, because they don't have the decelerative strength, they're going to go into valgus and that can increase risk. Mm -hmm. So the point being is, hey, structural balance from a concept of this is really important to, to go over and establish that there's an underlying risk factor when we have a detrained or undertrained muscle group, or we have this imbalance from anterior to posterior, is going to lead to some sort of compensation. It's going to lead to some sort of downstream outcome that's going to have a consequence from either performance, right? If we have a bunch of people landing with stiff leg, and I think any coach can attest to this, is when you watch that athlete that's just really weak trying to absorb it looks slow, it looks deliberate, and you're thinking that person has a really big deficiency. My job is very clear, and it's very transparent and present to you. And when you get in the weight room, you know what you need to do. But on the other end, the athlete feels slow. The athlete feels like they're sluggish. The athlete feels like they don't have that twitch or that response. And we could double down and do more plyos, we can do more cutting, we do more speed work. Or very simply, we can just look at an inventory of like, okay, if they their knee, knee extension is way more capable than their knee flexion or their squat pattern is way more developed than their hinge pattern or maybe a knee dominant posterior chain exercise like a leg curl, then you're going to have some problems. You're going to have some problems in terms of decelerating, in terms of overall potential, in terms of risk. And that is the central part of, okay, when we're looking at any relationship or pushing and pulling exercises, it just comes down to there will be a consequence. Just what question would be is, do you want to have that consequence be a big limiting factor or can you intervene and start to address that by developing underdeveloped muscle groups? Uh, and I want to go back to the VMO because I thought that was a really good point. And this is, this was a, a concept that we went through a long, long time ago with the Poliquin group. My background was predates Poliquin, more of the boil world, and I can go through functional training for sport, and you can look at this single leg stance, and he has a very great description of this. When we're single leg stance, meaning we're standing on one leg, that that VMO, or that, that I'm sorry, that glute med activates because the adductor and the psoas become a little bit more intense. So the glute med has to abduct the knee and then aligns the knee. And then when you sit down, you can align that hip over the leg and you can get into a single leg squat where you're not going to see that as transparently as a bilateral, even potentially a split stance. Now, as I start to get deeper into knee flexion, yeah, we're going to start to recruit adductor mangus, but the more specifically, we're going to get a little bit more vastus medialis. And that's a big presence of like why you need to train through a full range of motion. But it gets into this conversation. Is it, is it top down, bottom up? Is it the hip, the knee, the knee to the hip? I think it's semantics and I think it's chicken or the egg. I think what you really need to look at is, okay, do we have 
a really good foundation of the potential to train through a full range of motion, meaning I can go all the way down in the split squat, all the way down in the squat with good positioning, meaning my torso is more vertical and I'm loading that quadricep effectively. And then from there, can I recover from that? And you see this compensatory action, like when they lack the tensile strength at that range, do they have the ability to come out of that position without adjusting their levers or mechanical position to get some sort of mechanical advantage in moving? And that's the tell, right? We just talked about that with the research looking at quad hamstring and landing mechanics, that there's going to be some sort of compensatory action if I don't have the structural balance to support that. But the same thing through of, hey, do I have a tensile strength at certain ranges? And this is that potential and the variability component to recover from that. And it's the same thing from, hey, if I'm training one end from a full range of motion, the full litmus of bilateral stance, single leg stance, split stance, lateral stance, posterior lateral stance, any direction we want to go with it. And then we have that one side really develop, but the other side's not. And we take this one-sided approach of, okay, well, I'm just going to train through a full range of motion. I'm going to get my squats, single leg squats, split squats, but I'm not doing the comparable on what we look on the backside of, I'm not doing a bilateral hinge. I'm not doing a single leg hinge. I'm not doing a knee dominant posterior chain exercise, like a leg curl. And I look at those two things as like, they're symbiotic. They're, they don't have this mutually exclusive relationship. If I'm going to push it, I'm going to pull it. If I'm going to do a unilateral single leg, a split stance, a bilateral stance, I'm going to do the same thing in counterpart with the with its ag agonist or antagonist movement. And as we look through all training components, yeah, I could get locked in on the VMO and say, okay, I gotta get more range of motion. I gotta get deeper into split squats. I gotta work this final 15 degrees of flexion, this final 15 degrees of extension. But the same thing should be said about the hamstring. The same thing should be said about the distal and proximal muscle fibers, right? If I'm not getting deep on RDLs or, or, or some sort of like deep hinge and trying to get those, that glute fiber, the more proximal muscle fibers or the hamstrings really recruited. If I'm not going through a knee dominant posterior chain progression, like a leg curl, a slide leg curl, or a fizzy ball leg curl, or anything where I'm putting more tensile force into the more distal fibers, it's the same concept. The VMO is going to be detrained and the distal fibers of the hamstring are going to be detrained and you just need to prioritize because now we have the accelerators and the decelerators equal balance and what happens from a mechanic perspective. It's not going to always be a one-to-one -one relationship of just because I strengthen those muscle groups, I can't all of a sudden now decelerate really effectively or land really effectively. You still got to do the work. You still got to get out there and practice and rehearse these things so we could be more competent, but now you have the more necessary machinery to be able to do that in a higher level and the bigger part. And this is really important to note, your recovery mechanisms go up because it's not as taxing, right? When you have one side so much more developed than the other, all of a sudden we look at the, the actual impact from training is so much higher. It's so much higher. You're just working against yourself. You're struggling to make these like positions. You're holding these positions. Imagine that only one side is doing the work and you have a whole backside or whole lateral aspect or rotational aspect not contributing at all. Okay, well... What do you think is going to happen? Excess fatigue, breakdown, overall, just systemic drop and whatever it is you're trying to do. Right. I, I appreciate that you, you uh, emphasize it's not one-to-one. -one. Like, yes, you need to still hit those agonist-antagonist pairings, but you also still need to go train those mechanics. Because I think we could get, again, myopically focused on like, I just need to do this one thing, but it's, it's the whole picture, right? And we started getting into, uh, you know, the unilateral, bilateral talk there. 
I was wondering for myself, are we looking at, as we do these structural balance assessments, are we looking at differences in right and left? Like, what, how have you done it? What, what are you looking for? I guess it's a good question because we can look at this either from a foundation for developing movement patterns, but a lot of that's based off the a base of, all right, wh- what's your squat, bench, deadlift, pull up? What are those foundations that set these relationships, right? So if I can back squat this, I should be able to front squat and split squat this. If I can deadlift this, I should be able to RDL and single leg RDL this. If I can do a pull up on this, I should be able to bend over row and a different variation of pull up, like a chin up or neutral grip pull up this. If I can flat bench this, I should be able to incline this and overhead press this. That sets this like dynamic of, okay, well, can I hit different positions? different frames or different vertical vertical like directions, all these different patterns off of that. So that's one element. But then you can look at it from the other end of, all right, if that, let's say, squat pattern is really developed. And I actually just went through a lot of really good research with my staff talking about asymmetries and these like threshold markers. But one of the things that we could find during a bilateral stance and developing some sort of compensation left to right is that there's got to be some cooperating or supporting elements that lead into that that asymmetry. Meaning that if I have an asymmetry during a jump or landing and there's nothing else to support that, either I don't have an asymmetry during like a Nordic hamstring curl or maybe even more of a, a isolated movement test or some sort of joint assessment, that that might be just an anomaly. But The truth is, when we're looking at asymmetries, when we're looking at this left-right imbalance, we're looking at these things that are going to facilitate potentially a risk profile, my personal stance is that should be the guiding light. This should be an understood thing that we should focus on developing symmetry left to right regardless. But as we start to look at structural balance from a strength ratio perspective, what this does, it gives us a a really good indicator of where we need to focus. And you can see also too, it gives a breadcrumb trail of what you've been doing repeatedly, right? So we talked about most guys are going to the gym and just benching and squatting because they can see it. They're more familiar with it. There's some sort of standard. Well, you can go, okay, well, have you ever front squatted? Have you ever done a safety squat? Have you ever done some sort of split squat? Have you ever done a different variation like dumbbells? A hack squat? Have you ever gotten a pendulum squat? Have you ever done these other exercises? You're just looking at it from the concept of there's a really untapped resource. And if I'm going to bring value to this person, I can look at that. So I won't hold off and talk about this actually next month in October and looking at asymmetries, looking at movement assessment, looking at table tests, looking at all those things in comparison. But it is a good point of if there's asymmetry from left to right, I could probably surefire tell you that they're probably not doing enough split stance works, enough lateral stance work, enough posterior lateral stance work, enough single leg stance work, enough hops, enough bounds, enough anything where there's going to be more of this unilateral component that this there's so just for lack of a better term, focus on two feet in the ground because they're imbalanced or unstable, they're asymmetrical, and they're just going to do what they already really know how to do. And when you look at that again, it's like, okay, if I see a structural imbalance from a strength ratio perspective, of like, yeah, they're pushing and pulling different rates. If I see some sort of asymmetry, I go, okay, that could be a limiting factor from that structural imbalance, or it could just be an opportunity to go, okay, I need to get more unilateral focus. I need to develop that. 
kind of get into this idea of like a GPP or a remedial phase where we're going to work a lot of support exercises to be able to get more robust output. Uh, and there could be this whole other element of, okay, like you already got back squat down. Like you know how to do that. You're really good on that. You really want my services. You really want me to help you. I'm going to get you good at these other exercises or hold you accountable to that and do that at a high level and really prioritize that by progressively overloading it, doing it with great intent, great rep integrity, set integrity, training integrity. I'm going to hold you to the standard. And I'm also too really good at leveraging things like exercise order, tempo, intensity, certain components of that, like adding in a uh, combinating resistance or a eccentric overload. I'm going to tap into all these other things that just brings variety and variation to it to train that muscle group, train that movement pattern in a more robust way and get them the desired outcome. I want to run faster, jump higher. I want to be able to throw something further. I want to be a better athlete or I want to look better by just tapping into these things either they're not doing or tapping into this area that they don't know how to do the way we know how to do as coaches. And that's, again, our value prop. And if we're looking through all this testing, Corey, like I could go ahead and say, we're just giving you guys a very high level discussion of how do you know you're worth what you're, what you're worth? And how do you know what you do actually matters? And we talked about this with Will last week of this the complex and this element of there's no point in really testing because everything's changing on like this rapidly. But the other side of it is when we do know there's something area of like really underdeveloped and something that we could really bring value to and that may or may not have as impact, big of an impact as we thought it is, it doesn't change the fact that they've gotten better at something. It doesn't change the fact that they've improved in something. And that could be enough. That could be enough. And now you as a coach need to hold yourself accountable to the hopefully that being better at something is relevant to what they want, whether that's looking better or performing at a higher level. But that is the true mark of why we need to test and why we need to go through structural balance and go, okay, like, oh, you got a powerlifting background? Like, I'm going to work on front squat or I'm going to work on split squats. Oh, you, your weightlifting background? Okay, I'm going to develop some more upper body. Or, hey, you're a track and field person? Like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to work on more full range of motion. Or, hey, I... I have three herniated discs and I can barely get out of bed seeing this physical therapist. What can I do here? Like we could do a lot of more stationary stuff, prone supine, quadruped, quadruped, single leg stance, split stance, half kneeling, tall kneeling. We can do a lot of things and we're going to train the muscle groups that we can within the parameters that are the constraints that you're giving to me based off this initial assessment. And you know, a lot of times I see a lot of people who can't do a push up, can't do a single uh, pull up. I just have such amazing capability of helping that person. And the, the real hard part is following through on it. Like, look at you, man, you couldn't do a pull up three months ago and now you're knocking out 10 or you couldn't bench your body weight and now you're benching 2.5 times your body weight or something ridiculous, right? Like all these things, or hey, like we didn't back squat once in the past three months and now your back squat went up at the next meet that you did. And as I look through this, like that question, of looking at asymmetry, it has a really big impact on structural balance and program design. It may be coming off a different pretense of like, all right, now I'm looking at this from an injury risk potential or potentially this idea of like, if we don't address that, there's going to be something that's going to be a problem down the road. But on the other note, it could be a really big key to addressing some stuff that you need to do and bringing more value in areas that they don't really intuitively or truly understand at that moment, or just simply holding them to a higher standard. Absolutely. It's funny that you mentioned the, the, the athletes going to the big box gym and, you know, knocking out bench and squat. I actually had one come in the other day, like coach, when are we going to bench? 
I was like, uh, I don't know, not for a while, probably like, just show me you can do sets, reps, tempo. We can knock that stuff out and then we might get to it. And he's like, we bench every day. We go to the gym. I'm like, okay, well, you just told me I don't need to do that. It's just a really interesting conversation. It's like, okay, well, now I know for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. You're like, you just not, you just did that for me. It looks like you don't need me help. You need any help on that? Yeah, great. We're we're good there. So that makes my job a little bit easier. So I mean, I guess if we could boil down strength ratios, really, it's just another area we can track to make sure we're doing right by our athletes. Yeah, and, and you know, honestly, too, of like, you don't have to marry yourself to these numbers. Like the, the thing that. When you leave PICP and you talked about it with the other coaches, like, that's ridiculous. No one can do an external rotation of 11.8% of their benchmarks for eight with a 301 tempo. I was like, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, like, if you can't do a five-pound dumbbell and you can bench 400 pounds, that's a problem. Like, it's a significantly undertrained muscle group. And that's something that we could address. And we could do some more exercises to support that. We can create a more functional, stable shoulder based off this pretense of we're simply not doing it. And and as I look through it, it's like it's just somewhere to go. Like it's something to like focus on and see if it has an impact. And and as we look through, like basically we're just doing detective work of like, oh wow, I found a clue of why this person is in pain or why this person's struggling to make any headway on a goal or they've reached this plateau and they can't seem to bust it. And that's your expertise. Like, okay, like I have Pinpointing that. Now, the, uh, where I would say, too, it is so easy as a coach to have this preconceived notion before you even know the, know the problem exists, right? Like, I can look at the way you walk. I can start to do an inventory of what you're doing. And I start to go ahead and say, oh, I know this person's problem before I even assess it. And what's the point of assessing? And as a coach, you got to fight that notion. you got to fight that instinct to go, I'm just going to typecast this person and archetype them, and I'm going to start to just do what I'm going to do. It's a hammer and nail situation. It's not that. And that's, as, a, as a coach, you need to test and you need to retest to hold yourself to a standard of not having preconceived notion or bias associated with training decisions. And if I go through an assessment with everyone, I start to look at them and go, okay, like, they are structurally balanced in these areas, then it just comes down to, I just gotta work really hard. Like, I mean, really hard. Like, you can be really weak and really structurally balanced. That's probably the problem most of us would really love, but we need to know that. We need to go, okay, here's where I'm gonna bring value to you. But the other end is like, we could be really strong and structurally balanced and you go, okay, like, I'm gonna focus on areas that are gonna balance oriented, because. You don't need me to get stronger. You're benching on your own. Like, great. Like, thank you for doing that. I'll do some dumbbell variation. I'll do some different shoulder support exercises. I'll do some different cars, pails, and rails. I'll do whatever it is that you don't do on your own or you won't do. And I'll bring value there. That, that to me, is structural ba- structure balance. Like, it's, it's looking at the ratios. It's looking at all these things. But it's more importantly, like, just giving you some sort of diagnostic of how much you can help someone. And if you can really make a big impact, like you're invaluable, you're incredibly valuable. And that's a skill that most people really should focus on. How do I bring more value to people and how do I insert my skill set in their needs at a higher level? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you said it well, way better than I could have. And I, I think it's important that we understand like structural balance is important, but don't get married to like, oh, it's gotta be your, your deadlift has to be one-to-one with your back squat. Like, like all that. And I think it's very easy to do that. People are stealing my term. Uh, 
don't marry yourself to solutions, marry yourself to outcomes. I got to re retake that. You got to trademark that one. I have to, man. Like I've been seeing it circulating. I'm like, that definitely is a Tim Karen original. Yeah, so I say that all the time too. So I'm definitely guilty of it. Yeah, well, it's yeah. I'm not saying I need to be cited all the time, but I'm just saying like. If uh, Isaac Newton's going to be quoted for I'm the man I am for standing on the shoulders of the giants, or I could see further because I'm standing on the shoulder of giants, like, which is, I guess, some sort of like phrase from someone else, um, or is a direct knock at his like biggest antagonist because he's really short. You know, the why am I not getting cited for marry yourself to outcomes, not solutions? Like, I should be like on walls, man. Like, we'll, we'll get there, Corey. I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not there yet. You know, it's a long game. Yeah, it is. It is. It is right. Yeah. Eventually I'll wear everyone down. I'll break them down and realize, okay, probably every, every really great idea is somewhere I'm either in the beginning of or in the middle of. Yeah. 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 If we made it this far, you probably already know that I'm very confident. All right, Corey, thank you so much, man. We got, uh, we got Rob Jacobs coming up here next, man. And, uh, it is going to get deep. So, uh, Corey, thank you so much, man. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Yeah, appreciate it, man. If you like what we're talking about here in this podcast, you're definitely going to love this next thing. It's called Strength Deficit, your seminal resource to developing eccentric versus concentric ability with your athletes. We have a book, we have courses, we have everything you need to be able to implement, understand, and be the best strength deficit practitioner you could possibly be. You can get all of these resources at phpodcast.com and you'll become the best, and I mean this, the best possible strength coach in your setting. Rob, give me the first time you went through your first your first structural balance assessment and what was that like for you? So it probably would have been in, I guess, the early 2000s. And it was really eye-opening, I guess, was the was the easiest way to, to say it. Because you can, the tests that we use are so, they point out weaknesses so quickly. You know, you've got a um, an experienced athlete that can bench, you know, four bills, but can't externally rotate 10 pounds or you know, you got a, uh, a long jumper that can't jump off a six inch box without their knees going valgus or, you know, stuff, stuff like that. So it's, re- it's really eye opening these, these specific tests. And what I liked about it the most is because, you know, some of the stuff that we learn, even with like uh, FMS and a few things like that, they're great tests and they give you a ton of really good information, but it's like an hour of testing sometimes, you know, some of the stuff can take forever. Whereas you get into structural balance, you know, it's like 15 to 20 minutes and you're done. And you've got this battery of information that you, then you can really start to to use to write your programs with. Did, what were the tests that you did? You do it at PICP. Yeah. So uh, so we did. So what were the tests that you did? And what were your numbers? That's the other big thing everyone wants to know. What was Rob like in two thousand four? Uh, it it wasn't it wasn't good. That was like pre. <laughs> that was when I was like a buck eighty at like six percent body fat. So I couldn't have wow. couldn't have bench pressed my way out of a paper sack. <laughs> but. Coming off of baseball, though, right? You were pretty heavy into baseball. So this was MMA. This was like very, very heavy MMA. So I was, I was in like oh. ridiculously good condition. I was just weak as as shit. <laughs> you know? In MMA, they were probably thought strength training was a like counterproductive at some point, right? Like because very heavy jujitsu influence right? at that point, right? Oh yeah, big time. I mean, you, you know, you do like forty minutes of strength work and then uh, two hours of CrossFit. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my strength program. 
So what was the structural balance assessments that you did? So for lower body stuff, right, you're looking at a clat test, which can, I mean, tells you a ton of stuff, but really helps with valgus, right? You jump off the six inch box. Uh, we used the wobble board for split squats. We used some length tension tests for like hamstrings, adductors, uh, Thomas test for hip flexors and, and quads to figure out which one of those is tightest. And then mid grip bench press, bicromial, uh, chin ups, external rotations and trap threes. So you didn't do Scott curl? Not then. So now, now the chin up would go and it would be the Scott curl. Okay. I was blown away when I did Scott curl instead of chin up. I was like, really? Like this is a shoulder dominant exercise with a elbow dominant exercise. Like, and what was your assessment of the chin up and the biochromial bench? Do you think like, okay, like this is either the answer here or like, as you mentioned, you kind of evolved and done more Scott curl paired up with it. I mean, it, it made sense at the time, just in terms of like, all right, the chin up being sort of the ultimate, you know, biceps exercise, but you know, like what we've now, what we know years later, the, the Scott curl just translates better to, to bench press performance or predictive bench press performance. But, you know, like if you look at, at athletes, I think, uh, who is it? DeFranco has a fairly good like, concept of chin ups being a, a great athlete can do X amount of chin ups or, you know, that sort of thing. So it was always less of a strength performance thing for me. Cause you know, I mean, like, I don't know, the biceps, def the curl definitely translates better to looking at weight room performance of you know, your bench press or your incline press or your like predictive lifts. Do you have a good, I guess, I guess for acquiring minds, myself included, you know, what would make it a better uh, predictor in terms of actual like conversion to bench? It's just easier to do the actual percentile ratio or is it like something like deliberate with the mechanics or the muscle action? If you look at the, at the flexor exercise, so like the long head of the biceps and the triceps can affect the shoulder mechanics, right? Like proper shoulder mechanics and keeping the humerus sort of like centralized in the, in the socket really. So if you, if you fail what your Scott curl structural balance should be based on your bench press, then it is a really good indicator that it's like the long head of the biceps is probably not strong enough, or it's the limiting factor of the actual extensor exercise of the press. Whereas if you're doing something like the chin up, you've got what shoulder extension you've got, you know, it's pretty tough on the grip components, definitely tougher than Scott curl. You've got, um, brachial radialis. If you're doing neutral grip, pretty, you know, is influences that pretty good too. So by doing that, that supinated Scott curl on an easy bar, you really can look at the long head and the short head a little bit more specifically. Cause I think that's one of the things, you know, like from, from the powerlifting side of stuff, we really tend to think of, the like the lats being a bigger limiting factor on the bench press and nobody really you know gets down to the minutia as well as charles did in terms of like no that might actually be your biceps limiting your press and not necessarily your lats so i for me i guess i always looked at it and this is what my speculation 100 percent is just and it kind of felt like it was a cop out like much like moving the needle uh moving the bar up on blood markers of like now uh, HB1AC is like 6.5 in terms of like pre-diabetic. And it's like before when we first started, it was probably in the fours. And I feel like now a lot of people can't do chin-ups. And I feel like when you do a structural balance with a lot of gen pop, even a lot of athletes and power lifters, people that are even, I'm sure there's a lot of strong men who probably can't do a really good chin-up. It gets into this thing of like, well, what can we do right now? And probably most people can at least bench the bar. And then from there you go, okay, most people probably can do a Scott curl with a 
15 pound actually easy bar. And I felt like it was like, all right, I can get more data. And I felt like it was like, personally, this was a transition to just where people are as a, as a society from like the blood markers all the way through to the structural balance assessment, because it's hard when you go, Hey, by the way, we're going to do these lower body assessments and this upper body assessment. And part of it is doing a structural balance between your pushing and pulling antagonist pairings of your pressing and pulling. And you can't have the other person actually do a physical pull up or a chin up or a nutrient pull up. That for me was always that. Any like insights on that? Any thoughts on that? Or like, do you feel like that's completely way off? One of the things I, I talked with with David Lawrence about, you know, with, with some of the stuff we were doing in the past with Pollock and Mecca and all that stuff is that over the years, looking at the data, the chin up didn't correspond to like predictive bench press performance and structural balance of the press as much as the, as the curl did. I do. I'm on the same page with you in terms of being able to do chin ups as like an, an, an athlete, you know, like, I don't care. You could be 350 pounds. Like you should, I feel like you should be strong enough to do a chin up. You should have that much command over your body, right? At least one at body weight. Or you're too big. Yeah, exactly. And that's why chin-ups are so great, right? So you've got two ways to get better. You can lose weight or get stronger, and both are really important. Yeah, exactly. So, like, it, it, it's one of those things where I think this is what I, I remember picking up from here in DeFranco is that it's it's not necessarily a predictor to help your structural balance or your bench press performance like the curl would be, but it is a huge test of athleticism. And we are still using this to make sure that, yes, you should be able to do X, Y, Z, but if I'm looking at boosting your bench press, I'm going to, I'm going to pick out your numbers. So if, I, if we're looking at those, those percentages, right, the Scott curl should be about 32% of your bench. So if I got, if I got a guy that I want to bench hundred kilos and we can't curl 25 kilos on the Scott curl, if I get that curl up while getting some of the other weak points up, then that bench press should start to go up. But if you do that with the chin up, you're not going to see the, as big of a connection to the bench press. So um, there's two things I want to make a help with context for the listener right now. One, Scott Curl is the equivalent of a preacher curl. And if you call it a preacher curl, you obviously have no idea what you're doing. So fix that. Scott Curl, Larry Scott, invented it, best biceps in the game. Two, biochromial bench. I, Rob, walk us. So this actually be a good segue. So uh, one, let's talk about what biochromial bench is. And it's not a close grip bench. It's not a traditional bench. It is a structured position of your hands, relatively speaking, to your shoulder. I want you to walk us through that. And then two, walk us through now what your structural balance assessment is. So you got me. I Hey, Rob, I really want to train with you. I'm 42. I got two kids. I own three gyms. I got a podcast. I want to improve my body composition and get stronger simultaneously. What would that look like for you? All right. So with the biochromial press, right, it's a shoulder width grip. So different than close grip, different than the guillotine press, different than the competition powerlifting press. But what we look at with that is that it's one of the, it's very similar width to what you would do with a dumbbell bench press, right? So it's a, should be a very shoulder friendly grip. It will facilitate a pretty large range of motion comparatively. There's a reason powerlifters don't bench press this way because it's a longer range. So it gives us a little bit more of an indicator on what your shoulders are capable of in that position. Uh, and now in terms of athletes, that shoulder width position is probably one of the most, you know, I hate to say sports specific, but you know, the, the shoulder width with your hands, if you're on, if you're on the line, if you're playing basketball, you know, unless you're, unless you're doing your defensive stance, but by and large, your, your athletic position is pretty dominant within that shoulder width. 
So it tends to be a bit more, there, there's more transfer. If we look at Bonder Chuck's words, right? There's a little bit better transfer to sport uh, with that position. And we know that all of the ratios are a bit more relative to that position rather than wider, right? So if you're going to use a wider grip, you probably got to use some different ratios for sure. So I like it for that. And then you've got a few other things where that, that position tends to hit a little bit more of the sternal and clavicular fibers compared to something like the neck press where it's going to hit just like primarily the clavicular fibers or, you know, like the, if you're doing a powerlifting press, it's actually probably going to hit more of your triceps than anything. You're not really going to work your chest or your shoulders that much, you know, uh, like mostly lats and tries. So it's a, it's a really good position that covers a whole lot of checks, a whole lot of boxes. Now, my, my current assessment is a little more streamlined. I really, really, really like an overhead squat. I think that you can see a whole lot of dysfunction in a lot of different systems. So, so really I'll do a couple of length tension tests for hamstrings, for adductors, and then the Thomas test for, to kind of figure out, all right, is it quads or is it hip flexor issue? Uh, Cause that helps me with my, my exercise selection for, for lower body. And then we'll do the, uh, the overhead squat, right? You know, a good overhead squat is going to give you lats, triceps, lumbo-pelvic hip complex, what's going on there. You can see external rotation of the feet. You can see inversion. You can see eversion, torso position, how how shitty their your ankle flexibility might be. Is this a calf issue? Is it a hip flexor issue? Is it a, actually a lat issue messing up your squat? You know, so within five reps, you've, you've got a massive amount of information globally just on how this person can move. Uh, and dowel or weighted? I just use a dowel. You know, I don't even, I don't even, like, you don't even really need weighted for that. You know, like you, and honestly, like for, I know for myself, if you put a bar in my hand versus a dowel, my barbell overhead squat's going to look a little bit different. It's probably look a little better too. You recruit more, you potentiate, organize yourself better. Yeah. It's like the, I can't squat to parallel unless I got 135 on it. Then you can't squat to parallel. <laughs> exactly. Right. Let's, <laughs> let's see what you're capable of cold with nothing, you know, cause I like, God, I hope there's some gym bros out there listening to this. And I will, I honestly, like I, my mission in life is just to just break you down and let you know that you know nearly you don't know nearly as much as you think you do <laughs> right. uh, they feel like their confidence is absurd and i'm like i've been in box gyms for like a couple times over the past like decade and like i feel like the transition is like just they're more on their own little island and they don't realize how much they don't know but based off of like some sort of like meager following and like they just i don't know just well either way they're hopefully they're gonna get like hey walk me through that like I wish I could, but you really wouldn't understand kind of thing. So I hope that really lands with them, you know, Jim bro guy calling you out, man. Here we go. All right. So continue uh, lower body dowel. Okay. And then anything else for lower body? Let's see. Clat test. So clat test, um, overhead squat, length tension tests. No, I think that's it for those. Uh, it's a little bit streamlined because I, I really, like I said, I really like that. Do you look at split squat at all anymore? Not during the, not during the assessment. I, one of the things I like to do is actually, you know, my first, I'll do a little bit of length tension just to kind of see somebody's flexibility, but then I, I actually just put you through a workout before I, I do any of your, any of your testing, you know, like I just, I kind of want to see in the context of a session, oh God, your, you know, your squat sucks. We're never going to do those in the context of a workout, you know? So kind of put, put you through that so I can see one, how you move under duress really. Like, so even if you're capable of squatting, if we put 60 kilos on your back and then you start to get fatigued 
well, you just don't know how to squat anymore, right? So that's a kind of a different animal too. Does that mean that you have like a like predetermined like workout that you just run everyone through to begin with and kind of use that as like, all right, where they fall in terms of the ability to perform that? Like, are they excelled? They're excellent. Like, okay, I can fast track this. And if it were really deficient in these other areas where I had to modify, regress, or just cut it entirely, I know a lot of information the other way. Yeah, exactly. So, so I've got, you know, like just a four or five things in the, in the first session Rolodex, depending on what you come in for, right? Like if it's a, if it's a, a male athlete, one of the things I like to do is, uh, is use six, 12, 25, but also throwing a push up in as the 25 rep exercise and seeing a professional NFL athlete, not be able to do more than 10 is uh, you know, like, man, bro, it's a good thing you're here. You really need me. Let me ask you this though. Cause I'm sure this has come up. Like, in regards to, you got a business, you got to sell, sell, you got to sell someone and you can bring value to them. Did you find coming out with clat wobble board, balance discs, structural balance assessment, like was almost like deflating and like they see you online, see this rocked up dude, see this guy is just doing incredible high level stuff and you come out with just table tests and very slow drawn out tests like to begin with. And it felt like that was like, you were almost killing the sale. Like, did you, like have that like epiphany that like I need to give them a little bit more early to get them interested in what I'm doing. There was definitely some, some sort of transition in there. Right. And and then you also run into the thing where, well, if you spend your, your initial meetup doing all this assessment and they don't actually purchase a, like a package, right. Uh, well then they didn't really get anything out of it. And I just wasted an hour of very valuable time. Whereas if I just throw you through a workout carefully crafted and, you know, like, making sure nobody's doing anything horrendous, right? I mean, like <laughs> if I say we're going to do front squats and you physically can't hold the bar, great. That was a, uh, a very well executed assessment. Now you can't do this, you know? And one of the, like one of the other things too, with, with even something like six twelve twenty five or some of the other like giant set style of workouts, it's like, all right, today you made it through two sets of this and we had a 37% drop off in performance. If I were to give you this this workout in your program, I would not only expect you to do five to six sets. I would also expect you to not have any more than a five to 15% decline in performance. So that is, you know, here's where you're starting. And this, you know, like you didn't make it through the second set. <laughs> like you literally just quit. And 12 weeks from now, we're going to do this again. And you're going to do five sets and you're not going to see this decline. So I think, you know, choosing, choosing that workout from the Rolodex based on what, you know, from your initial conversation, oh, I'm here to lose weight or, um, you know, like one of my strongman competitors who had actually made it to worlds before they came to me, we did something like that. And it was a, a giant set and they didn't survive the second set. They're like, all right, great. Work capacity is not good right now. Cause you're coming back from this injury. You made it through one and a half, 12 weeks from now, you're going to do five of these, you know? So uh, those like say like, those are my sales techniques. You know, I'm, I'm not going to try to Somebody's like, oh, I need to go talk to my wife. And then, you know, you've got the whole thing like, well, you think your wife wouldn't want you to be in shape? Like, I don't function that way because somebody said that to me. I wouldn't I wouldn't respond well. You know, so for me, the best defense of sales objections and those sorts of, and buy in and some of those sort of things is a good offense. I am going to spend that first meeting with you showing you what I can do for you and how much you need me by demonstrating, you know, where you're where you're lacking. And then in your first real session. We'll spend an hour going through a deliberate thought out assessment. Like, Hey, here's some stuff we saw during your initial workout. And that workout doesn't ever take much more than 20 to 30 minutes. Cause everyone fails, you know, like they need you. So 
you do a little bit of assessing just to make sure like, all right, what's our, what's our shoulder wrong? You know, because like one of the, one of the things with Charles and some of the acupressure and some of those instant like flexibility techniques, you know, I did this with one of my, my female soccer players. She had very, it was uh, poor hip mobility in one of her hips. So I did some of the acupressure and like we got, I mean, literally couldn't break parallel. And then we went ass to grass and on in the span of 30 seconds, like that's a great, that's great for sales. You know, like, <laughs> look what I just did for you in 12 minutes. Imagine where we're going to be in 12 weeks. So, so knowing those little things and having those tools in the Rolodex, like, oh, here's a huge weakness. And, and you know, you can almost see that based on what they're telling you. You know, if somebody comes in like, oh, I've got tight hips, uh, my, you know, my back hurts because my hips are really tight. You're like, all right, we're going to do some length tension tests. We're probably not going to do a very strenuous lower body workout. And then you throw those techniques on and we're like, hey, we just, you know, we didn't, we didn't stretch at all. And we just got you. Uh, you know, you, now you can touch your toes, which you haven't been able to do in years. Now that's going to go away, but you just did it. And we can build and build and build where you can actually do this again. Uh, so recap, it's, hey, I'm going to do a Thomas test, a couple other length tension tests. I'm going to look through overhead squat. I'm going to look through a clap test. And then then you go on the upper body. Yeah. So then we would then we would start to look at some maximal strength stuff. So some 1RMs on some sort of press, whether it be a press behind the neck or you know, you mean you honestly, you can really choose whatever. And if it's my initial one, it's probably going to be a bench press because most people can't shoulder press properly, certainly can't press behind the neck properly. So look at that bench press and then we, and we would do a Scott curl. And are you doing the attritional, like working up to a true structural balance one around like the 11 to 13 sets type of breakdown? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a four, four, three, two, one, 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 and then, you know, start extending your rest. So I really like that. And you're flipping back and forth. So you can get that done rather quickly between the length tension tests and then how fast the, uh, this, this part is, because once you get to the trap three and the external rotation, that's going to take about three minutes, you know, <laughs> because nobody makes it past, nobody makes it past the first one or two sets. So nobody, you know, nobody's failing. Yeah. Well, and I also find too, like we the point of like the sales aspect. It's when you're talking about like, Hey, we're going to take a three minute rest here when we get to these like later sets. And you start to go through what the program's gonna look like. You start to go through of like what what how this has an impact on the program design. You start to go through these things that are building up like this is value. This is value. And I think the the young ones in the game of like, I just gotta sit here idly and wait, like that's when you sell them. That's when you talk to them. That's when you start to show them the value that you're gonna bring to them. And it makes that period one way more beneficial, but two, they get hopefully a better readout on what their actual structural balance assessment is, as opposed to just rushing like, ah, it's been about three minutes. It's only been about 30 seconds. It's not enough time, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a great time to, to build some rapport, to talk to them and, and, you know, really explain what's going on. And then, okay. So you move on to your, I guess the remedial shoulder exercises. So you said trap three. Yeah. So we'll do a, a bent over supported trap three on a probably 60 degree incline and then um, a seated, elbow supported external rotation. Okay. And then no Powell, no Powell on the initial one. Um, it's, it's a great, I think it's a, it's a great exercise, great supportive exercise, but we don't, there's not a lot of great data on the Powell. Like your Powell should be X. I've got some in some of the databases, but I, I find if you, the, the biggest bang, you know, like the, the snatch grip deadlift of remedial shoulder exercises, I think our trap three and that and the external rotation. So you put together some notes and we'll put those notes on the website as well to show like these breakdowns. So I think it would be helping give context, but 
one of the things that I thought was really interesting is when you get to the remedial, you have some sort of like benchmark to discover how much volume or how much time you're going to allocate in your program design. So walk us through that 50%, 75%, 100% 8RM on your remedials and how that influences your program design going forward. So we've got a given percentage, right? Let's say we, we bench 100, uh, 100 kilos. So we, we then are going to take a specific weight for the trap three in the external rotation to match that percentage. And then what we'll look at is the number. So when we're looking at program design, right, the number of sets that you're going to perform for your remedial lift is going to be dependent on where the athlete fails on their 8RM attempt. So if we, if we fail at 50%, then you're going to perform, uh, you're going to do four sets. And that's going to be, you know, primarily because th those athletes are, are less, they have a less than optimal ability to recruit the muscles that they need. So you're going to need additional volume. And then you jump up to, all right, they made it through 75%. Well, they don't need as much volume and they can tolerate less sets on the remedial lift. So, you know, just one exercise series, but you're going to keep it. You want to utilize a slow tempo just to increase the exposure, right? And then if we get to failing on the 8RM, then you're just going to perform three sets and be done with it. So like looking at if you're failing in that 50% range, one of my absolute favorite and I think most productive methods to to work on uh, structural balance is to use a Dublais system, right? So you you start your A series of the workout with two sets of external rotation, trap three, whatever your variations are. And then you also finish the workout with another two sets. And that gives you conceptually what you're looking at with that is, well, why not just do four sets at the end and be done with it or four sets at the beginning and be done with it? Well, if you, if you look at learning, right? And, and, and think about learning it, you're essentially, you're increasing exposure. Rather than seeing that one time for four sets, you're seeing it at the beginning, you're seeing it at the end. You do that workout a few days from now, you see it at the beginning, you see it at the end. You're seeing it more often rather than rather than just the same number of sets. So you're you're essentially if you're practicing a skill, right? You're you're practicing your skill more often than you're than you're not. It's just in terms of the number of exposures. So the the earlier you fail, failing in that 50% range, that's where you're gonna start to get into those duble sorts of programmings where you just need to see the exercise more often. Even if your total volumes are similar, that Dublais types of exposure uh, really has an appreciable ROI. Is uh, Dublais French for two? Yes. Or double? Yeah, both, I guess. French-Canadian influence still in there, man. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I, awesome, man. So I want to kind of like just recap and just go through start to finish, if that's okay with you. Just so hopefully this really lands with the listener, right? So... Hey, what's up, Tim? My name is Rob. I'm going to take you through a, a workout. We're going to see something like a 6, 12, 24, or 25 uh, to see where you're at from a capacity standpoint. And then we're going to go through a, a lower body and upper body structural balance assessment. So go through the workout. You find out I can make it through one set because I'm all talk, no walk. And then I get into the actual structural balance, little Thomas test, length tension, relation, length tension test, maybe like hamstring, maybe quad. And then we go into an overhead squat. We go through a clap test. And then we go into upper body, biochromial bench, working up to a true one RM, pair that up with a Scott curl, looking at a eight RM at a specific percentage, which probably there's like nine to 11% range of whatever your biochromial bench is and trap three and elbow on knee external rotation. If I can only get four and below, that means I'm doing more volume of the remedials and it might use a Dublé or double method where I'm gonna do it at the beginning and the end. If I'm four to, four to six, 
or this six and six to four kind of range and I'm going to do 50% and I might just push it to the back end. And then if I'm above eight, I'm pretty good in the remedials probably just means I need to get stronger now. Cause that's the catch 22 of it all. If like they're really good at the remedials, that probably means that their actual maximal strength is really low. That's the ironic part is like, it kind of pulls you in the direction that you need to go, which for me, when I went through the structural balance assessment, everyone's like, that is a very specific percentage and that is a very unattainable number. It's like, that is the point. It reminds you of what you kind of need to work on as opposed to just doubling down on things that you're already either good at or you already like to do and to begin with. And I think that's what like Charles is like big influence was like just giving some gentle nudges to say, Hey, I know that you love the bench. I know you love to do this upper body work, but at the end of the day, you're only going to go so as far because you're shooting a cannon from a canoe and you need better structural balance of your shoulder, your hip, your knee, et cetera. Uh, does that sound, did I miss anything? No, that was spot on, man. I, I think just from the sales aspect, right, you know, we've hold, heard the old adage, like nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care, right? So not doing a battery of structural assessments the first time you meet someone and they walk into your facility, you know, unless you're someone like Charles, right? When when Dwight Phillips shows up to Charles Poliquin's facility, he sort of has an idea of why he's showing up there. So he doesn't need to be impressed with Charles kicking his ass, he needs to be impressed with Charles, what Charles can show him data wise. And like, here's your glaring weaknesses. But when, you know, when Joe Schmo shows up to your gym for a, a membership for a fat loss program, he wants to know that he's going to get his ass handed to him and you're going to make him work. And then you can show him how much, you know, once you sort of demonstrate what you can actually do for them, you know, so, so being able to be a, adaptive and, you know, you're not discarding structural balance and all these great methods or FMS, whatever your chosen method is. But knowing when to utilize that to to facilitate, you know, putting food on the table for yourself, but also just getting the best out of your clients, I think has has been a a great change for me. I mean, I think you and I can both attest. It's you know, the people that knew Charles the best would probably understand that Charles knows that eventually you need to make a living and you need to make money and you need to figure out how to sell. And he knows there's a fundamental difference between you and him in terms of the instant pedigree and rapport that you're going to be able to have being him versus us. Like we have to convince every single person every single day that we are worth the time and the money. And he just was at a state in his career or a, a certain level that he didn't need to do that as much. And maybe we get there, maybe we don't. But reality is, is finding creative ways to sell your program without compromising your values or integrity from getting really good information and program design. You know, that's the game. So, man, I, I, 
Awesome, Rob. That was amazing. Thank you for your time. Uh, yeah, this is structural balance. That's about as good as it can get of a breakdown. So make sure you play this back at least two to three times so you can get all that information and then write good notes. Honestly, you can't get enough of that. Thank you, Rob. Hey, thanks, buddy. That was a absolutely jam-packed episode. I hope you guys enjoyed just to recap everything, we looked through research articles looking at quad hamstring ratio, looking at shoulder function, looking at how to practically assess not only antagonist agonist pairings, but what that impact is on performance, movement compensation, et cetera. And then we talked with Rob and we talked about Rob with strength ratios and how that's going to have a huge influence on progressions going from remedials into a full-on workout using a workout to assess work capacity but also seeing movement compensation and deficiency rob got a lot of great information from just simply looking at their way of making it through a pre-designed workout and their capability and he can get a really big jump off of selling his product you're going to create demand by simply showing that you bring value right away and this is something that's often overlooked when we talk about assessing and it can be mundane and boring and just really, really bring down the overall enthusiasm of starting a new regimen. So as you're diving into all of the resources attached to this, one of the things that I really encourage you to do is to get on our forums. And if you're a member of our PH curriculum, you get access to a private forum where you can ask myself, Rob, Corey, any one of our hosts, any questions, and we'll get an answer back to you. And the thing that you really got to look at, is this just the tip of the iceberg? This is just the start. That structural balance, performance testing, all these topics that we've been diving into, it's only going to be as valuable as what you put into it. So if you're just sitting there listening to this and you're not taking that opportunity to get on the forum, go through the suggested resources and material on the website and the curriculum, you're really not going to get the full advantage of this. So become a member of phpodcast.com, ask great questions, see all the resources supporting this to become the best possible coach you can possibly be. All right, guys. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.